It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I can't believe we only have one more episode after this. So technically we have two because I'm still including this one. But uh, it's, it's a unique thing because I've been going through this for 14 weeks. You guys joined, uh, what, almost five weeks ago now. And... Uh, this has been a joy, it really has. Uh, we have ourselves a doozy message right here. I'm gonna actually try and get through a lot of material as quickly as I can. I don't know how quick that's going to be, and so this could be a little longer than my normal uh, session, but it's, I think it's gonna be worth it. There's a lot in this that I think is very, very practical and applicable for us in our lives right now. It is called the conscientious objector. And for those of you that are familiar with that term, uh, probably nothing needs to be more said on it, but for those that, that, of you that that's a new term, uh, there are those, especially in a time of military uh, recruitment when basically there's a conscription and everyone, every man between a certain age is supposed to sign up for the draft or register to, for the draft. And then if they're drafted, now you have a challenge. So legally, by the government's, uh, you know, uh, mandate, they are supposed to register. If they don't register, they're now illegal, and they're standing against the government. That's a form of disobedience to start with. But then if they register in agreement with the government, and then they get drafted, which is only a percentage of those that register, now they have an issue. Uh, and sometimes it's with conscience. Uh, and there's a lot of people that don't want to fight in wars, but their reasons are maybe not that impressive. And then there are some that struggle with fighting in a war because they genuinely believe in their conscience that it would be wrong for them to do it. And that creates a tension, and it is a tension known as the conscientious objector. So here we are in this landscape of World War I, and I haven't spent a lot of time talking about this dimension. It's a very real dimension, I think, for some of us in this room even, of how we engage with something like war. And so I'm going to walk through that because part of what I'm after is not trying to solve that dilemma for you. I'm not going to try and talk you into a position on war. Uh, and, but what I want us to understand is that part of the sacred dimension that we are first entrusted with isn't the decision of to fight or not to fight. It's how to stand together as the body of Christ and with Christ and to live in unity and in love together, understanding that there can be differences of opinion on things of conscience, and that can create uh, challenges as well. And I'm going to use the vaccine as a issue to discuss through. So you're going to see me use that as a present tense issue to link it with some of the issues that people have faced in regards to war uh, in the past. And I think it'll be helpful. The conscientious objector. May 18th, 1917, you're going to notice this matches with my last message, which was on uh, Alvin York. Congress passes the Selective Services Act. The draft of men in the U.S. Army begins. This is a highly controversial act, this conscription act, because it didn't give someone the option to register or not based on their conscience. They had to register. And if they don't register for the draft, and this is in America, okay? If you don't register for the draft, even if you're a conscientious objector, if you don't register, well, then you're in big trouble with the government. Now, if you register in agreement with the government and you declare that you're a conscientious objector, they're going to make your life hell. So they'll allow you to do it. 
but they're going to make you miserable. And that is a very interesting tension, I think, for us to look at in history. War brings out some odd behaviors in governments. And in World War II, you're going to see Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who's typically understood as the ultimate nice guy, right? And the way he is going to decide in regards to the Japanese citizens of America, you have to look back in history and say that has to be one of the biggest mistakes any president has ever made, right? It doesn't look good. It's like a big black eye uh, on Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But in the moment, in the heat of the moment when Pearl Harbor is bombed and you have an animosity and a hatred towards Japanese and it starts to spread, it becomes a racial thing. It's some of what we saw happen over the past couple years uh, and in this country where you see racial tensions uh, become heightened because of an action. And so what we see is that oftentimes people will overreact in their soul and usually regret it later. But that's what's happening in war. You oftentimes have an amplification of human emotion and judgment sometimes is lacking. So history.com, I read this in the last message too. It's basically a summary, a quick summary. The act required all men in the U.S. between the ages of 21 and 30 to register for military service. Within a few months, some 10 million men across the country had registered in response to the military draft. Within a few months, 24 million will have registered. The conscientious objector and the bitter trials of World War I. You see, as we're going to progress through history, the conscientious objector is going to have more of a voice, and it's going to be more accepted. In World War I, it was not accepted, and I'm not just saying here in America. In fact, in other countries, you might even say they were worse off than in America, and it was pretty difficult in America. So this is just a sample uh, illustration that would have gone around in the newspapers uh, back in the day. And you see this guy, and he's sitting back in his barca lounger, you know, and it says conscientious objector, smoking his cigar, and he's just sort of kicking back because this is what the conscientious objector was deemed. It's just a slouch, you know, some, some guy who doesn't want to, you know, lift a finger. He's the sluggard. And so you see that all his family is serving in the war, and he is just sort of sitting back at home. And so in that sort of picture, you see the typification in a culture where you begin to stereotype someone who is un, you know, doesn't feel that they can fight. Well, what if your motives are very different than that? However, that doesn't translate very well. So there were mock trials. The soldiers hated and despised the conscientious objectors. Here they are risking their life, and these guys are going to go home and take our jobs in the factory that were ours, but because they're a conscientious objector, they're taking our jobs. Can you just see the tension that is going to build? So could you imagine being a conscientious objector in the midst of those soldiers and how they're going to treat you? Contempt for the CO. The CO is the conscientious objector. In the home of the free. So here's Theodore Roosevelt, just a quote from Theodore Roosevelt, and he was the president before Woodrow Wilson. And this guy, I don't want to call him a pro-war guy, but boy, uh, that would be a pretty good uh, you know, description of him. I've always liked Teddy Roosevelt. I can't say that I'm overly impressed with this description, but you have to recognize, when he's thinking of the guy in the chair sitting back with his cigar, you can understand why that would antagonize a man like this. And so he says, the bulk of the conscientious objectors are slackers, pure and simple, or else traitorous pro-Germans. The opponents of conscriptions are professional pacifists, poltroons, which means cowards, and college sissies. 
Okay, now if you're, if you're a conscientious objector and your president, who you've always admired, is saying that about you, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty hard thing to swallow, right? And then here's Woodrow Wilson, who, by the way, is a pacifist, okay? And so this is what he says. What I'm opposed to is not the feeling of the pacifist, but their stupidity. My heart is with them, but my mind has contempt for them. I want peace, but I know how to get it, and they do not. Wow, talk about some uh, the lines of battle being drawn. In, In other words, if you're not in agreement with the governmental hierarchy, you're wrong. And this is a tension that we have felt over these past couple years, and we haven't felt that in America for a long time. And so many of us are unfamiliar with this territory, but this isn't unfamiliar in our country's history. To fight or not to fight, conscience and its role in World War I. So here's Alvin York. This is a quote that I read in the last message. My religion and my experience told me not to go to war, and the memory of my ancestors told me to get my gun and go fight. I didn't know what to do. I'm telling you there was a war going on inside me, and I didn't know which side to lean to. I was a heap bothered. I I don't have my Tennessee accent on, do I? It was a most awful thing when the wishes of your God and your country get mixed up and go against each other. One moment I would make up my mind to follow God, and the next I would hesitate and almost make up my mind to follow Uncle Sam. Then I wouldn't know which to follow or what to do. I want to follow both, but I couldn't. They were opposite. I wanted to be a good Christian and a good American, too. Now, there are some that are very upset with uh, Alvin York as a conscientious objector that he went and fought. And yet, I I really like Alvin York. And because I understand what he's dealing with is an issue of conscience. And in his conscience, with weighing the truth and processing through, he came to the place where he felt that it was his job as a believer and as an American to do what he did. Now, it doesn't mean I think you should agree with him. And that's what's interesting about the topic we're on, is it's not just a a clear line, because part of it is the way that you, in your perspective, in your own conscience, is engaging the issue. And my job as a fellow Christian is to be sensitive to the way that you are wired and the way that you are reasoning through it, and not to press upon your conscience my conscience. And that's the challenge we face in some of these issues is the body of Christ. So this comes from martyrstories.org. For 45 years, the Hutterites, and the Hutterites, and some of you know who the Hutterites are, but they're a community that came over, I think, last from Russia, but I think they may originally be from Germany. I'm not positive, but somewhere in that zone, and they made it over to South Dakota, and they are, by nature, non-resistant. They do not involve themselves in government. For 45 years, the Hutterites lived in relative peace in South Dakota, but that peace was shattered by Wilson's Conscription Act. And by the summer of 1918, four Hutterites living in South Dakota had been drafted into the army against their will. Joseph, Michael, and David Hofer were blood brothers. Together with a brother-in-law, Jacob Whipf, they were ordered to report to Camp Lewis, Washington on May 25. Because they objected to military service on grounds of conscience, however, they refused to cooperate with even the basic induction procedures and were thus considered to be military prisoners subject to military discipline and were henceforth court-martialed and sentenced to 37 years in military prison. Two of them are going to die in their time in prison. They were beat up and basically tortured by the system at hand, uh, and they would not bend. But for most of us in here, we would say, uh, that's not good. <laughs> 
And yet you have to recognize the emotion that is prevailing in this situation is you are anti-American. How dare you call yourself American and be on our soil and take advantage of the wealth of this country and then in the day of need, spit on it. And so it was a patriotic act to harass these men. And that's, that's a unique thing. Is it a patriotic act to shoot a German? And so you sort of begin to think these things through as a Christian. You're like, ah, I don't know that I like these, these types of thought processes. The British battles over the conscientious objector make them miserable. So Martin Shipton is going to write an article on this. And this is very interesting. And I'll just sort of go into it. But this is in the British side of things. Convincing a tribunal could be very difficult. So if you declare that you're a conscientious objector, which the British allowed for, they allowed for you to declare it. However, that doesn't mean they accept it. You need to prove that you're a conscientious objector. And so they have a tribunal for you to prove that you're a conscientious objector. So here's an example of that. Convincing a tribunal could be very difficult. Researcher Rob Phillips tells the program, and quote, in a case in Carmarthen, um, Car Carmarthen, Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. We have Captain Lewis, the military representative, questioning a conscientious objector and giving him a scenario where a Zeppelin, that's like a, a balloon, uh, came over Carmarthen and dropped a bomb onto a school where there were children. And he happened to be near there. And by shooting a gun, he could bring down the Zeppelin. He was asked what he would do. The applicant, a farm worker, said, I would not kill a man. He was further asked if he would run away or if he would take a sporting chance of bringing down the Zeppelin. The applicant said, I don't think I would try. Captain Lewis took another tact, asking the applicant if he would shoot a wounded horse on the farm where he worked. When, he told, when told that he would shoot the horse, Captain Lewis said, he's no, he's no ground to stand on. If he can kill a horse, he can kill a German. The outcome of the case is not recorded. Now, as you go through that, you could evaluate that scenario from two different ways. You could look at the guy as a total ridiculous joke, like who's not gonna stop the Zeppelin? That's one way, and people can get really upset with this guy in the story. It's like, are you saying you would do nothing? He's about to drop a bomb on a school and you're gonna do nothing. So you have that argument. You also have the other side of the argument, which is look, this guy does not feel that he can use violence. In his conscience, he feels restrained to not use violence in, of any sort, which means he couldn't attack that Zeppelin. And then this guy like catches him. It's like, but you'd kill a horse. It's like, yes, but that's an act of mercy. He goes, and the guy's like, well, what's the difference? But you can sort of see the tensions that are created in these things that create a disruption of soul for everyone involved. But this is the tribunal, okay? This isn't actually the best way, in my opinion, to handle someone who is struggling in their conscience, okay? I deal with people who struggle in their conscience all the time. This is not a good way of handling it. It's basically to mock them. Now, this is where it really kicks into high gear. Around 300 conscientious objectors who failed to convince the tribunals that they should be granted an exemption were transported to France, where they were told that they would be shot. In fact, the death pen penalty was not imposed, but some were marched to face a mock firing squad as part of a psychological offensive against them. Most conscientious objectors were sentenced to terms of imprisonment with hard labor, and many were not released until seven months after the end of the war in June of 1919. 
All right, now, I'm not sure how you are weighing through these things. It's difficult leading the military. It's difficult being a government in a time of war. It's difficult bringing people into agreement that you need to fight for your country. Hey, you know, we, we all fight, guys. We all have a duty to do. And so there were a lot of manipulative things. Uh, there was the white feather where all these pretty ladies were commissioned to go around, and if they saw any man that was not you know, dressed in military uniform, that was just sort of hanging out, they would stick a white feather in their lapel. And that was a public mockery. And if you had a white feather, that was the ultimate shame. And the pretty girls had all the white feathers to make all the grown men. And many men just went to war lest they would ever be shamed by a white feather. Not because they agreed with the war, but because they didn't want to be shamed by a white feather. The disturbing case of Private Jimmy Smith. Not taking a direct order from your governmental authorities has serious consequences. So we're dealing with a soldier, but this isn't just any soldier. This is a soldier that has been already awarded medals of valor. He has already suffered on the front lines. He was even buried by a shell uh, and then rescued, and he has already shown heroism. But because of being exposed to that involvement in the war, he has something known as shell shock, and he's psychologically rattled. And so now they commission him to go to the front lines again. And he can't go. I can't go, sir. I can't, I can't go. Don't send me to the front lines. So instead of sending him to the front lines, they shot him. So this is a war hero for Great Britain that because of what he went through, he didn't feel like he could go to the front lines again. And so they put him in front of a firing squad. So Dan Snow says it this way, on August 21st, 1917, Private Jimmy Smith was executed by the British Army for desertion. He was a decorated veteran buried by a shell blast at the Somme and diagnosed with shell shock. He refused to return to the front and was shot by firing squad. So when we come to our modern day, we have issues that are challenging, that are not altogether different. And that's why I, I'm going to use the vaccine because for some of you in here, you could look at the vaccine and say, what is the big deal? It's the same way that some of you in here could feel about the war. It's like, hey, if you're drafted, you go. You have a duty to your country. It's just what we do as citizens. Don't you know that? Well, it depends on your upbringing. <laughs> and then there's another side, and these are all Christians that could be saying this. Another side that said, if you are drafted, you cannot go. In fact, conscientious objection is an expression of your deepest faith. And so as a result, it doesn't matter what they do to you. It doesn't matter if they put you in front of a firing squad. Your answer is no. And both sides can look at each other with disdain. Because one side could look at those that are going off and fighting in a war as being sinful. The others could look at the conscientious objector as being sinful because they're not obeying their government and submitting to their government. Romans 13 style. And so as a result, you get this conflict within the church. And that is precisely what I'm wanting to put my finger on is actually we need to learn how to work together even with our differences. And so the vaccine dilemma, it's not Wilson's Conscription Act of 1918, but it definitely sports some, similar, some, some similarities. The unique challenge facing the modern church. So I'm gonna give three different options for how we respond to any challenge in our life. Is it fear, preference, or conviction? So there are things that you don't want to have anything to do with. However, your reason for not wanting to deal with them may not be a conscience issue. It may be a fear issue. And it may actually not be a fear or a conscience issue. It may be a preference issue. I would just prefer not to do that. There's all sorts of things that I would prefer not to do, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't do them anyways. 
And part of the evaluation inside the soul of a man or a woman is we need to know when it is a conscience issue, we have a clear response. When it is a fear issue, we have a clear response. When it is a preference issue, we have a clear response. But we need to distinguish between those. So if it is fear, we have a clear response to fear. Nope, I don't give way to fear. Fear has no voice in my decision-making process. We are not ruled by fear. We do not come under the thumb of fear. We are not under the boot of fear. No is the answer to fear, so that we can reason clearly. Is it preference? If it is a preference that you have, that you would just prefer not to do something, then what I would say is if the government is commanding you to do it, you submit. If it is a conviction, which means it's a violation of your conscience to go against it or to agree with an order coming against you, you must disobey. And so those three are very different, though. And when it comes to the vaccine, when I brought this up to the church, not just our church, but the church global, this is a critical dimension because many people are afraid of the vaccine. Now, they're afraid of either not getting the vaccine because then they would be exposed to COVID because they're afraid of COVID technically, or they're afraid of getting the vaccine because the vaccine is a malevolent scheme and conspiracy to destroy Christians. Okay, there's, there's a lot of uh, stuff going on out there as far as trying to figure this out. And I guarantee you, probably every single one of you in here has been exposed to different thoughts of what could be in the vaccine. I mean, there's little robots in the vaccine. If you hear one person talk, it is the mark of the beast. You know, if you hear someone else talk, I mean, this is tough stuff. And you, it would be good to sort of know where you land on this, wouldn't it? Because it's hard to make a decision on something if you don't have facts. And that's one thing that we've been lacking lately facts. Uh, so as a result, it becomes extra challenging. But you know what? War is no different. You know the Germans, when the Germans are going to surrender, sorry, a little bit of a spoiler, but we are in episode 41 out of 42. <laughs> when the Germans surrendered, you know that the people of Germany had no idea that they were that close to defeat in the first place. They thought they were winning. Because of the propaganda, they actually had no clue what was really happening in their country and in their military. And so as a result, I can identify with that. Propaganda from a government is an important part of ruling a people. You want a people to think a certain way so that you can direct them. That's not always evil. It could be helping them so that they don't panic, so that they do maintain order. So here's, I'm going to give you a list of communications I had in the heat of the vaccine mandates around the world. Because in America, we had vaccine mandates, but they were not globally applied. They were like uh, in the military or in this business operation or in schools. And it probably affected a lot of you in here where you had to make a decision of how to appropriate this stuff. But I had men and women from all over the world communicating with me. So here's a handful of communications. Here's from a guy in Canada. Please pray for us up here, Eric. Things have gotten real the last two days with vax passports and government restrictions. I'm headed to an emergency prayer meeting with one of the head doctors in Alberta called by a politician five minutes ago with a few brothers. Whatever news he's got, he's very rattled. Praying, about, praying at about 9 p.m., please pray with us. This is an alumnus uh, from New Zealand. Eric, regardless of whether I choose to be vaccinated or not, I pray that I would not stoop so low as to use a vax passport to enter my own church. The thought of standing outside my church and being denied entry simply because I refuse to produce a vax passport is breaking my heart. So in New Zealand, you actually have churches that are saying you cannot actually be a part of this church unless you can prove a vaccine passport. That's a whole new dimension. I mean, it's one thing to be standing as the church united 
against a movement of government. It's a whole different thing when suddenly the church itself is standing against you if in your conscience you don't feel you can get a vaccine. Now here's an American sister. She was also in ministry. It still is. My role in my church is now indefinitely on hold. The reason? I am unable to provide a vaccine passport. So she's in a very large ministry here in America, and she actually had to step aside from the ministry because she couldn't produce a vaccine passport. So this isn't just in business. This just isn't, isn't just in the military. This is actually in the church itself. And so this creates issues for those of us in this room. New Zealand pastor writes this. He wrote this to, uh, I'd say, about eight to ten uh, men from around the world. I'm sending this email out to eight, oh, there it says it right there, eight men that I consider pillars of the faith and that I know trust in the Lord. I respect you all and trust your judgment, so I'm asking for your help. I'd love to hear each of your views, opinions, and positions on this topic of the vaccine. I'd also be keen to hear how you have managed the discussion in your various environments. So he was in the, in the heat of it down in, in New Zealand. Uh, and so he's like, I need some perspective because the church down here is, <laughs> is sort of like cattywampus and, and we need, I need some outside perspective. So this is one of the guys on the list, one of the eight, and he's a, a man I, very, I highly respect, okay? He's a Canadian pastor, and this is his response that I'm reading, okay? I didn't know there was a Christian position on vaccinations. I'm a bit confused as to how there could be. I take drugs every day because of heart disease, and I've never even thought there might be a Christian position on such procedures, other than among those who reject medicine on the grounds of God being sufficient for our health. This is purely a health issue, not just for ourselves and for those we mix with, so as to avoid both getting COVID and being a carrier for it. To be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine. Or am I missing something? Now, there's a few in, of you in here that are like, yeah, that's well-spoken. There's a few of you in here that are deeply offended. It's like, what do you mean? Is that... It, it, to, this is a very intelligent, God-fearing man who loves the scriptures. And he is basically saying to be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine. Okay, now let me keep going. This prominent, the same guy, is going to write, the sole question to my mind is, do I value preserving my own health or do I value reducing my own risks as a carrier to others? Is there any other issue in this? That's a, he's begging an answer, isn't he? So here's a pastor in Texas. With regard to the vaccine itself, Christians need to be able to make medical decisions led by their own conscience. The only vaccines readily available in the United States have been manufactured using fetal tissue from induced abortions. My knowingly receiving this vaccine is tacit approval and cooperation with the practice of abortion, a practice I personally believe to be sinful. I have never knowingly taken medication that was manufactured using fetal tissue. Therefore, I cannot take the vaccine in good conscience. Are you guys starting to see some tension here? You're seeing two prominent pastors actually that have completely different conclusions on the same topic. So Mark Twain uh, says, the preacher who casts a vote for conscience sake runs the risk of starving. It's a, it's a tough thing when you start allowing your conscience to have anything to do with your decision making because it can really lead to uh, some problems for you. Listen to this, the approaching storm. This is the storm that I see and this is a storm that hit in World War I. And I'm not gonna say it didn't hit in World War II, it just hit it a different way. Pastor number one says to be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine. Pastor number two says to be pro-life is to be anti-vaccine. Uh, those are pretty sharp distinguishing differences. You know, it, it isn't like, oh, those two can just sort of hang out together, right? And, come, and just say, oh yeah, well, I agree with you, dear brother. You know, we might see it slightly different. That isn't slightly different. That is completely different. 
And so as a result, what we see is a potential fracture of the body of Christ. Many churches were divided over the issue of mask wearing, of six-foot distancing, and the vaccine. And what I would say is that is the most pathetic reasons I have ever heard for dividing the body of Christ. We have a clear commission to be united. And the devil is very good at trying to divide us. And so we have to be very watchful not to allow our issues of conscience to divide us from others who have issues of conscience as well. We have to learn to work together. And in this, we have the issue of conscience. So the prominent Canadian pastor says, the sole question in my mind is, do I value preserving my own health or do I value reducing my own risk as a carrier to others? Is there any other issue in this? And I would say, yes, there is another gigantic issue in this. However, it might not be the issue that you're thinking. Here's the issue. It's the health of the body of Christ. It's not the individual health of the person. It's the health of the body of Christ that's at stake here. And by the way, that's far more important to me. That seems to be the priority point for Jesus Christ, too. When Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, that seems to be his priority, And so, yes, there is a bigger issue than your handling of your own health and not being a carrier of COVID. It's how are we, as the church, are we healthy together? Jesus was willing to give up his health in order to give life to his body. Throughout Christian history, men and women have laid down their lives to supply strength to the body of Christ, which means we should be willing to lay down our life, if necessary, to make sure that we are healthy as a group, not just my individual body is healthy, not just my family is healthy, the body of Christ is healthy. And so this is the pattern of Christian history. Take me instead is the famous statement. It's like when there is a threat and someone is going to be harmed, you step up, I always say, as the man, this is what I teach the men, as the men, you stand up and say, take me instead. That is the attitude. So it's like, in all of these situations, it's self-sacrificing, not self-preserving. Everything about this whole vaccine dilemma seemed to always go in the direction of self-preserving. Me, me, this is my world. This is the way I think. Instead of, it's like, hey, I am a part of something bigger than me. How can I labor to bring us together in the midst of this without compromising my conscience at the same time? The willingness to suffer that others might live or at least not suffer alone. So the pastor, this is the classic age-old pastor throughout history. He's the one that visits the sick, whether contagious or not. So how odd is it when the pastor then secludes himself in a church and says, show a vaccine passport to come in? Do you see a, a, a violation there? In other words, the pastor is the one that goes to where the sick are, isn't he? I mean, whatever happened to the pastor, right? What happened to this guy? The one that visits the imprisoned, even if that means he gets thrown to the wild beasts along with them. Have you ever heard the story of Perpetua or Perpetua, where her pastor is actually going to go and come into the prison with them and be fed to the wild beasts with them? What pastor would do that? He wasn't in the prison, but he is going to literally ask to be to share in their sufferings with them. Well, that's a unique pastor. The church is the place ready to embrace the sinful, the unhealthy, the broken, and the diseased. The place where health is supplied, not required for entry. We don't require that you're healthy before you come in. Could you imagine if God said, you have to prove that you are healthy and righteous before you can come to me? We're in trouble then. If we have to have a righteousness outside of him to be able to gain access to his presence and to his righteousness, we're sunk 
And so when the church starts dividing over the wrong things, we start contradicting the very platform of what we represent. The challenges of the early church were different. You're not going to see vaccines in the list. You're not going to see conscientious objection from war conscription. However, you have food sacrifice to idols. That was a huge deal. Head coverings, Sabbath days, and circumcision. These were all things that Paul is going to address in 1 Corinthians because the church is divided. And he is going to come in and he's going to address these things. Why? 1 Corinthians 13 is the summation. It's the, it's the high point of that book. Love. It says this is what we're after. This is the better way. Let's make sure that we are united in this. So the conscience, sunidesis is the Greek word. It translates to joint knowledge, the moral sense of right and wrong, the other set of eyes to view the matter, the other perspective of the soul that doesn't seem to side with self. It's interesting. Conscience is an odd thing because you in your mind could conclude something, then you could feel a prick or something off. What is that? It's this other perspective that is like weighing in on the matter. It's like, who invited you to the party? What are you doing here? And yet they have an opinion and they don't give up easily. In other words, you can sear your conscience and you can harden to it, but if you listen to it, it's a very, very precious thing in your existence. So the conscience, I like to, you know, if I'm going to give a, a, a mental picture, it's like the driving mirrors. As you're driving down the road, you have two eyes and they're looking out this way, but then you have like, all these other perspectives that you can go to, and that's like the conscience. You have that right side mirror, the left side mirror, and the rear view mirror. And when you heed those, you're likely going to miss that semi-truck that is in your, uh, your left uh, lane when you're trying to make a lane change. You see, if you don't heed your conscience, there's a crash up ahead. The conscience could also be described as the soul's eye. It sees something. It's not just the mind. It's like just the soul is actually able to see something that your logic isn't always picking up on. Because a lot of times we try and justify why we do things. And the conscience will prick us. We're like, shut up, conscience. Just let me be. And yet it can't. Its entire job is to function in its role. So the biblical facts about conscience, it can be weak as it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. It can be trained, 1 Corinthians 8, 10. It can be trained incorrectly or seared, 1 Timothy 4, 2. It can be ignored, 1 Timothy 1, 19. And listen to this one. It is tremendously important, 1 Peter 2, 19. The conscience, it's the second opinion of the soul. Have you ever uh, heard the statement, it's like, yeah, we're going to the doctor, yeah, and the doctor gave us this as a feedback, but we're going to get a second opinion. And that's what the conscience is. It's like you can conclude in your own mind something, but are you heeding your second opinion? What does your conscience say in this situation? And you should heed it. You should always make sure. And I'm not even saying it's correct. Sometimes we have a poorly trained conscience. Like if you were told your entire life, that like I grew up with all sorts of funny things. Like my dad said, if I stick my finger uh, in the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket, you know, there's a hole in the top, probably to let the, uh, the steam come out, I'm not sure. But he said, there's a crab in there and it'll bite off your finger. Uh, and he was joking, you know, dad style when I was young. But, you know, if I had grown up and never had that corrected, I could be very conscientious for you. It's like, don't put your finger in there. Don't do that. You're like, what is wrong with you? And you know, I, I'm not gonna go any further than that. I'm just gonna say, keep your finger away. And I could be heightened in my sensitivity to something because I was misinformed. So you can be improperly trained and your conscience can be groomed improperly. You can have an incorrect conscience. Paul calls it a weak conscience where you're super sensitized to things because you, you actually think demons have more power than they have. 
And so food sacrifice to idols is an issue of a weak conscience. It's not in an informed conscience based on the fact that God created all this. 1 Peter 2.19, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, it's commendable when we actually stand on behalf of our conscience and don't go on meltdown. Historically, this nation, speaking of America, has regarded the importance of conscience. So look at what Harper Lee writes in To Kill a Mockingbird. This is an interaction between Scout, who's the little girl, I don't remember how old she was, like eight or so, and, and Atticus, who's the hero dad. Scout says, Atticus, you must be wrong. Atticus says, how's that? Scout says, well, most folks seem to think they're right and you're wrong. Atticus says, well, they're certainly entitled to think that, and they're entitled to full respect for their opinions, said Atticus. But before I can live with other folks, I've got to live with myself. The one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's conscience. I, I really like that book, by the way. I like Atticus. George Washington said this, labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. John Milton says this, give me liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to the conscience, to conscience above all liberties. In other words, the liberty of conscience is the chief liberty of all liberties. Do not forsake it. Martin Luther King Jr., this is a, a two-part quote. It's, it's a really powerful one. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. On some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? And vanity comes along and asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis and controversy. Whew, that's a good quote, guys. Martin Luther says this. This is at the Diet of Vams uh, in, in 1521 when the, uh, the Pope is basically saying, recant or die. You know, aren't you going to recant, Martin? Or Luther, probably called him Luther. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Albert Einstein. I still sort of wonder. It's like, did he actually say this? This is an interesting statement. I don't think of Albert Einstein saying something like this, but, hey, it seems to be attributed to him. Never do anything against conscience, even if the state demands it. I don't know if you're sort of like me, where it's just like, Einstein, did you say that? It's a good statement. The difference between preference and conviction. So you're going to notice I have two things up there standing out. Preference, conviction. They're very different, but we can mix them up very easily. So preference can and should be compromised for the sake of unity with others. Convictions ought never to be compromised, no matter the occasion or circumstances. So let's run some practice drills with this. Okay, so I want to show you the difference between preference and conviction. And so we're going to use me as a, as a test case. Okay, so the first question that comes to me is that my preference on taxes. Eric, how do you feel about taxes? What's your preference? Well, my preference is I don't want to pay them. Right? There is nothing in me that is looking to pay more taxes, to pay any taxes. If I could get out of taxes, I'd be very happy with that. However, let's go to the second part of the practice, and that is my conviction on taxes. 
My conviction on taxes is the government is my rightful God-given authority, and if and even if I disagree with their current tax law, I will submit to it as unto God. Now, you may disagree with my conviction on taxes, and I'm not trying to convince you to agree with it. I'm saying that is my personal conviction on taxes. It's not a preference. In other words, my conviction doesn't allow me to not pay my taxes. My conviction, in a sense, causes me to pay my taxes, even though I'm going to use an accountant and I'm going to be wise with how I set up my businesses so that I don't need to pay more than I need to. Let me just put it that way. In other words, I have a conviction that I need to heed the law. So Matthew 22 talks about this. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So let's do another one, okay? A practice number two, my preference on wearing masks, or what do they call facial coverings now? We switched it from masks to facial coverings. I still call them masks. Uh, and what's my preference? Uh, I don't want to wear a mask. I, I do not like masks. Uh, if, if, you, if you ask me about masks, I really, really, really don't like them. Okay, and, I, and that's how it started too. That was not something that grew out of it. It's like, I'm not putting one of those things on. You know, that's how it started, okay? And it's like, and I remember saying to Leslie, it's like, unless I'm commanded to do it, there's no way I'm putting one of those crazy things on. And so then they do command it. Uh-oh, Eric has some challenges here. Now, I am not saying that you should respond the same. I have many friends in my life who have a conscionable conviction that even if the government asked them to wear a mask, they could not wear one, okay? So I want you to know these are debatable points, and I'm just sharing you with you how I landed in my own conviction. So this is practice number two, my conviction on wearing masks. The government is my rightful God-given authority, and even if I disagree with the current mask mandate, I will submit to it as unto God. And the moment I walk out of the grocery store, that mask is off. In other words, to the degree that I could take it off, I took it off. And some people would still walk into the grocery store with their mask off, right? And they would be like, hey, I'm, I'm showing an example to the culture that this is a dumb law. And I'm not going to argue. I actually don't think masks do anything, right? Now, I'm sure there's some hyper-developed uh, masks that probably are helping better than those original masks we had, right? However... As a conviction, my issue is not if I like them or not. It's not a preference issue. It's the fact that it is not a violation to my conscience to put a piece of fabric over my mouth. I don't like it, but it's not a violation to my conscience to do it, so therefore, if my government asks, I will submit, even though I really don't like it, and if I had an opportunity to vote against it, I would. So Romans 13 talks about this. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister for, you to, for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of, God, because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor." All right, guys, I'm going to use a more extreme illustration to show a 
time where I can't submit, okay? Now, that's hard. I'm not going to use the vaccine lest I create a division in here, okay? Because that, that's a ten tension that I'm trying to walk us through. So I'm going to take something that's a little more clear. So my, our, our practice run is my preference on mandatory abortion. Now, we don't have mandatory abortion over here, but in China, they do. If you have one child, well, then you have one child. That's fine. But if you get pregnant with a second, it's a mandatory abortion. Uh-oh. We have issues. And so what is my preference? I really, really want to keep my baby. And then how about my conviction on mandatory abortion? The government is my rightful God-given authority, but earthly government is not my highest authority. If the government ever commands me to do something that violates my king's commands to me expressed in the word of God, then as an issue of conscience, I must say, not on your life. Uh-oh, Eric, do you know the consequences for that? You know, the Chinese government, isn't, that's not going to sit very well with them. I know. However, I have to heed my conscience in this. Acts 4, 18 through 19, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered to them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, how did I say that? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Acts 5, 28 through 29 says the same thing. Did we not strictly, this is after they violated the command, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. When God's word is in the ascendant, it doesn't matter if man comes up with a law. If it asks us to violate God's word, we cannot. Paul and the importance of conscience in the church. Acts 23, 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Acts 24, 16. I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Romans 9, 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So let's do some practice run-throughs here. Okay, we're going to take the issue of a gun. Now, for some of you, a gun is not an issue at all. You may be not attracted to it, but if it was sitting here, you wouldn't be against like putting your hand on it. There's some people that feel like it is an immoral element. It's an immoral idea, concept. And so therefore, they won't even touch a gun. And this is an issue of conscience. Now, you could mock someone else's conscience, but I would say that isn't actually the advice that Paul is going to give. In other words, the fact that someone may land differently than you in regards to some of these elements of life that I'm going to bring up is part of what we need to learn to deal with. So should I pick up that gun if my government asks me to? So option number one, if you conclude that that gun is evil, then the answer is no, because it's a conviction, a violation of conscience. However, to many of us, I would say a gun is amoral, which means it depends. What are you asking me to do with that gun? You know, if there was a, a tin can on the, uh, on the fence, and it needed to be shot so that that would, that would pull some, some, it was some invention that once you knock the tin can, it like released the water and it watered the fields. So it's like, here's the gun, shoot the tin can, and we'll get this thing going. Well, guess what? That's an amoral use. It's not a, it doesn't have a moral value in its use. It's like, sure, I'll touch the gun. I'll shoot the gun, right? However, if it's to shoot a German, that might trigger more in you, okay? But the gun itself isn't the problem. And then there's option number three, uh, which is that gun is the tool God invented to purge evil. And there are Christians that have that conclusion as well. 
And so absolutely, they're very excited to pick up that gun. And they're very excited to rush off to war. There were a lot of Christians that went off to war. And there are a lot of people on the opposite side that believe that gun is evil, that really struggle with those Christians that went off to war and wonder if they really are true Christians. And ironically, the ones that went off to war to fight look back home and see the conscientious objector and they wonder how they could call themselves Christians because they're not submitting to their government. In other words, you have a tension here that we need to learn to ride out. Let's use the issue of money. Should I use money as my means of buying and selling? Now, most of you just do, and you've never really thought about this. However, in history, this has been an issue because if you conclude that money innately is evil, it says that love of money is the root of all evil, but some people have taken that to mean money is evil, okay? If you believe genuinely in your conscience that money is evil, then you better come up with a different way of doing your buying and selling. And so option number one, that money is evil. So no, because it's a conviction, a violation of conscience, you can't use it. Now, option number two, that money is amoral. In other words, it doesn't have a moral value in and of itself, so it depends on its use. And that's how probably most of us land in it. But then some people, uh, you know, there's whole sections of the church, I should put quotes around that, but that money is the tool God invented to promote his kingdom in this earth, so absolutely, where they make money the big issue of their church, right? And money is to be celebrated and all that, as opposed to well, you need to be watchful because the love of that money is the root of all evil. So let's make sure we have a healthy relationship with that money. It can be a tool and it can be a help, but it can also mislead us. So let's make sure that we have a proper relationship with it. The vaccine. Uh-oh, guys. Should I get the vaccine if the government mandates it? And there's the question that many of you have struggled with. I know many people in my life that lost their job because of this issue. Some people that actually had to leave their college because of this issue. And some people that have also, that they did get the vaccine and that felt like in the conservative realm of the church that they had failed somehow or that they had sinned. That is like, that's dangerous territory we're messing with here. This is a really hard issue because it could easily splinter us. So option number one, the vaccine is evil. So if you deem the vaccine evil, if you believe it to be the mark of the beast, you should not get that vaccine. Now, if it's the mark of the beast and everyone else is getting the vaccine, I can sort of understand why you would be a little disturbed over everyone else getting the vaccine. So you can sort of understand how people would land on this. However, if you believe that it is evil, you should not get it. It's a violation of your conscience. Option number two, the vaccine is amoral. So it depends on the why behind getting it. If you're getting it because of fear of COVID-19, that's actually not a good motivation to do anything in your life is because of fear. If you're getting it because of fear of losing your job, if you're getting it because of fear of public uh, disdain, uh, you might want to check that. That is actually not a godly motivation for anything. However, if you're getting it because you can only get into this country to share the gospel by having a vaccine passport, you know what? That is a more noble uh, orientation of thought. And there are a lot of people that are in situations where they feel out of obedience to the Spirit of God, they got the vaccine which does make it hard for the person up there at option one who thought it was evil. If you can just follow my logic on that, that's like a challenge and you could see why there could be rifts over this. Number three, and this is that Canadian pastor, which says that vaccine is the tool God invented to preserve the human race. So absolutely, I'm first in line to get it, is what he's sort of saying. And so as a result, you have these variations of approach and it's very dangerous if you were to say one of those is right, one of those is wrong or one is right and two are wrong, right? Which is the way we naturally are disposed to do. We have a tendency to draw too sharp of a line when it comes to issues of conscience. 
And actually, there's a lot of variables that come into these things. Handling the Christian with a different conscience. 1 Corinthians 8 talks about this. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all thing, whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciences consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled but food does not commend us to god for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we do not eat are we the worse but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak so another way of saying that is beware lest your conclusions of conscience actually create a stumble for someone else or do not show a sensitivity to the fact that someone else may be wired differently in their conscience. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat again meat lest I make my brother stumble." In other words, Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to preserve the integrity of the body of Christ. He is perfectly free to eat meat, but he will refuse to eat meat if it would cause harm to the body of Christ around him. And that is the attitude that we want to encapsulate in here. In other words, instead of just saying, hey, you're wrong, hey, I'm right, hey, look at this, but to say, okay, we understand that this is a tenuous issue. In the body of Christ, we have a lot of flavors, and we have a lot of different heritage and upbringing. And so when you have the Anabaptist line that is going to start with a premise of non-resistance, this is what they've grown up around. And yet you may have grown up around guns and you know, you're going out hunting, you're talking about those Germans over there and how they'll get their due if they ever step on your soil. And you know, that, when you grow up in a militia mentality, it's a pretty good name for it too, isn't it? Then it seems weird and weak and cowardly when you see the Anabaptist line. It's like, come on, guys, get your game on. And yet the opposite is true, too. When you see, when you grow up in an Anabaptist line and you see the, the guys with their, you know, their guns, you know, shooting at, you know, animals all day long and laughing about it, giving high fives, you're like, brutal, savage. It doesn't look right. It doesn't translate. The priority of love in the church It's not an issue of vaccine, it's an issue of our bond in Christ. That's our first issue. By this all will know that you are my disciples. Now I left a dot, dot, dot on the end. I know you guys already know the end of this, but I want to just have it linger. By this all will know that you are my disciples. Is it because you have a vaccine passport? Is it because you are anti-vax? How will you know the disciples of Christ in 2022? By the way, it's the exact same way that you know them 2,000 years earlier. And so let's finish the sentence. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is actually our priority point. And so our conscience should dictate this above all, that I want to show love to the body, which sometimes means that I am going to walk through with you. I have close friends that have gotten the vaccine and that feel like they were assaulted by the other members of the church. I have 
people that are very close to my life that didn't get the vaccine and felt like they were assaulted by other members of the church. Isn't that just ironic? <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of assault going on uh, here. And it's over something that is so opposite of the kingdom of heaven in the first place. This whole COVID-19 thing, the whole government handling of it, everything is just like totally blown out of proportion to the point where then it's fracturing us. If someone is rude in your life and they come up and bop you in the nose, they have issues. But that doesn't mean that their issues need to become your issues. If you love them back, if you are kind back and you forgive them back, then their issues don't become your issues. But when you allow them to bop you in the nose and it makes you mad and you bop them back, now their issue has become your issue. And in this, we're in a hostile situation in this world. And, you know, we talk about conspiracy theories. There really is a conspiracy, and that is to destroy the truth in this generation. There really is. There's, it's a devilish one. You don't need even humans to be a part of it, even though they can be. They participate with this demonic regime. And it is always anti-Christ. It is always anti-truth. So when you stand with truth, there is something against you. There is. You don't need to fear that because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. However, it is a real conflict that we are in, which means you likely will be bopped in the nose, but you need to be ready to forgive. What's my position on the matter? So here's my position on the issue of vaccines. This is going to be really satisfying for you. I'm pro-body of Christ, not pro-vaccine or anti-vax. See, isn't that disturbing to you that I don't answer it directly? That's because that is my position, and it's a genuine position. I've had that position from the very beginning. I am pro-body of Christ. That is my priority in how I handle this issue. And I would be willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that the body of Christ is preserved in this situation. And so that's, that's where I lean. And that's where I feel God has burdened me to lean, and that's where I would want to encourage you guys to lean too. What's my position on the matter? I'm pro-body of Christ. I'm not pro-war involvement, and I'm not anti-war involvement. It's just mix, missing the word there. In other words, I am not going to try and say that you should, if there was a draft right now, that you should sign up for it. Well, the first thing I would begin to do is I would begin to teach on conscience. That would be the first thing I did, just like I did in the vaccine issue. I begin to teach on conscience. I would get the, the tools for reasoning out on the table of how we evaluate this. Because there really are tools for evaluating it. Some people oversimplify it and say, we're supposed to, Romans 13, we're supposed to submit to the government. The government asked me to go to war, I'll go to war. Go, okay. And this other side is going, but God said we're not supposed to kill. And have you ever seen the nature of Christ and how he interacted with those that opposed him? He didn't bop them in the nose. He didn't shoot them with a gun. So he would be the first picture of a pacifist that ever existed. And, so, and then you'd have the other side going, isn't he coming in the clouds with a sword protruding out of his mouth, coming to bring judgment on the nations? Doesn't sound like a pacifist to me. This is the same argument we've gone around in circles with this argument for generations and generations. Okay, one of the key things to note in this is that when someone has a conviction in their soul that they cannot kill, they shouldn't kill. It's that simple. And you should stand by them for it. There is another layer to this that I, I think I have it coming up on the screen. Here it is. Understanding what I'm going to call the weighty roles principle. Authority is responsible to carry out challenging jobs and biblically authorized to do it. Now, so if you were to ask me my position on some of these things, like I am not a violent man and I do not think violence is the answer to handling any dilemma. I'm the classic diplomat. 
I'm the guy that's like, we're going to talk this through until we can all live together. There's never a point where it's like, hey, I can't talk with you anymore. And I punch someone in the nose. That isn't even on the table for me. So I am what would classically look like a conscientious objector if a, if a war was coming. At the same time, I have a layering of thought in there that is very real to me. And that is that there is assignments that people have that, remember how it talked about in that one passage, these are God's ministers. These are God's ministers. When a judge sentences someone to prison, he's doing something that I should never do. I should never bring condemnation to a prisoner because that's what it is. That's condemnation that he's bringing to him. He's bringing a judgment on him because that's his job to decide justice in a situation. If we don't have justice in this world, we have chaos. And so I praise God that we have justice and I praise God for judges. And there are sometimes God's ministers that are given tough jobs or what I could call weighty roles. And their job and their fulfillment of that job is actually righteousness to do it. It's actually an extension of God's justice, even though it would be totally inappropriate for any of us in the room to do it too. But they have been given an authority to carry a role. Let me give you just some samples of that. Parental discipline. I have the uncomfortable job of disciplining my kids. Guess what? It is not enjoyable. And if any of you did it, it would be such a violation of my home. You do not have the jurisdiction to come in and discipline my kids. It would be completely wrong for you to do it. So you could have a conviction that says, I am never allowed to, to discipline kids. Dis disciplining kids is wrong, and you would be sort of correct. But there are situations when kids need to be disciplined. But it's a parent that is given that assignment. Or if a parent gives that jurisdiction to a teacher, or they give it to a babysitter. You know, I'm just giving illustrations. They give it to grandma and grandpa when they go on vacation. In other words, there is a jurisdiction of responsibility, and it's not a fun job. And no one really wants to do it, but it's called a weighty role. Business firing. There are people that are in charge at a job to fire and hire. Firing is one of the least favorite jobs of any business on earth. There's some people that I think enjoy it. However, if that was your job, you have a unique role and it's a weighty one. And yet no one else in the business can just come up to someone and say, you're fired. It would be totally inappropriate. So you could come to the conclusion and say, I'm never allowed to fire anyone because that, you know, that's totally inappropriate. You'd be partly right. You're never allowed to do it unless you were given that authority. Judge sentencing, which I just called, uh, police arresting. It's like, are you glad that bad guys get arrested? However, you're not supposed to go out there and arrest someone. You're not supposed to pull them over to the side of the road and say, uh, <clears throat> Sonny, uh, I clocked you speeding 20 miles over the speed limits. Uh, what do you have to say for yourself? If you did that, it would be completely inappropriate because you're not God's minister for that job description. So all that to say, there is a debatable point on the fact that a soldier is given the job as God's minister. I'm putting quotes around that because, I, again, this is a debatable point, and this is a tension point in the body of Christ, but you need to realize that some people have this. I understand jurisdiction, which means I understand that. I taught government for years. I understand government. I understand the, the flows of it. And so for me, I have a sensitivity for the fact that I believe it is plausible that a soldier can be a minister of something very weighty and very uncomfortable, and to do a job to defend. Okay, now you can take that for what it is, and, but I'm not trying to convert anyone to anything. I'm saying there are reasons why people come to these varying conclusions, and it's not because they just want to kill any more than I want to discipline. 
or I would want to fire someone. No way. I don't want that. I don't want to be a leader. That's what you feel like when you're a leader. I don't oh, take this job away. I don't want this job. It's very weighty. And so as a result, we pray for our leaders that they would actually be led by God in how to utilize this weighty role that they have because they can do great harm with it or they could do great good. What's my position on the matter? I want to think, I, I want the body of Christ to think biblically, conclude biblically, and act biblically. Which means not that we are pro-vax or anti-vax, or that we are pro-war involvement or anti-war involvement, that we are one as a body. And that we recognize that in this gathering right here, I guarantee you there'd be a whole handful of you that would be conscientious objectors if there was a conscription right now. And there'd be others of us in here that might rush off to war a little too hastily. <laughs> in other words, we could divide over that issue, or we could start right now by saying we'll stand with each other. We'll stand with each other's conscience on that matter. And as long as it is a genuine conscionable issue, you could have a genuine conscience issue that says, this is my job for my country to protect it. So when you deal with like an Alvin York, that guy was torn to pieces on the inside, but he came to the conclusion that to deal with this threat to the world, he needed to stand up and be God's minister. And he did. And yet that's hard for the Anabaptist to see because it looks like he failed in his conscience when in actuality he may have fulfilled it. And so these are tension points, and I just want you to recognize that. And I'm not asking you to agree with any of my positions on it. I'm trying the best I can to not give a whole bunch of positions. But to actually show you how the difference between fear, preference, and conviction work. And that we are called to not make division over preference or fear. However, conscience must be followed and heeded, but hopefully not unto division. Hopefully, if we can show love one unto the other and say, okay, I can stand with you. I wouldn't do that. I couldn't do that, but I'm going to stand with you because I know and I understand what you are doing. You're doing it out of obedience to God. So what does it mean if we have that position? This will, means, this which will mean that we will not divide over any of these matters in the church, and we will not block people from fellowship that conclude differently. But we will show deference for differing positions in the body and never close off fellowship with those whose conscience dictates differently than our own. Father, we need wisdom in these matters. We feel like we're heading into deep waters in episode 41 here, and it's weighty. It's hard for us to look back and see how conscientious objectors were handled in World War I. Lord, it's disgusting to us. But Lord, we want to handle things better right now in the church. We want to be marked by your wisdom and your love, but also truth. Steer us, Lord Jesus, and just train us for the upcoming storms that we would stand together as a body and not fold, not fracture because of any pressures from outside. We submit this request to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.